Okay, so that, just remember that one, write it in your diary. It's not our intention to keep you for a long time this morning. In fact, in probably about 30 minutes' time, we'll all be eating hot cross buns under the awning out there. That's a good idea. Um, yeah, give me a thumbs up if they are actually going to be hot cross buns and not just cross buns. I, oh, yeah, they're going to be hot cross buns, folks. We're a bit worried about the water prices there for a minute, but it is going to happen. Arinda's on, on the job and she gets it done. This morning... On, on Easter, there's only one thing to talk about, isn't there, really? And that's the crucifixion of Jesus. It's, uh, as I said earlier, a high holy day. But it's not a myth and it's not a Christian legend. It is an actual fact. Because the Roman conquering armies that in, in occupied Palestine at the time, they were like any good conquering army. They kept immaculate records. And they actually kept rac- records of a young Galilean prophet who was executed for sedition on a particular day, in, in a particular year. So there is actually physical records that Jesus existed and was crucified in the way that the Bible says. So we don't come here to celebrate something that might have happened. We come here to celebrate something that is solid fact. Dig the person beside you in the ribs and say, Jesus' crucifixion is factoid. Factoid. For the last uh, three weeks, Pastor John Hunt has been preaching here on Sunday mornings. He's been preaching a series called Grace Abounds. And last Sunday, he spoke about the good news, the good news of how the good news is announced. And what we're actually talking about today is, in fact, very good news, the fact of Jesus' crucifixion and what it opens up for us. It opens up more than you think. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Pastor John left, left us in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to pick things up there this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, just the one verse, it says this. Paul, the apostle, is writing, and it says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So many times we think that Jesus died for our sins according to what we've been told or according to my own situation, my own personal story, my own, how it relates to me, 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 me. But the backstory from the Easter weekend is the whole of the Bible because Jesus died for our sins according to the whole Scriptures. That is the framing story, and it really influences how we appreciate Jesus' death and resurrection. It gives us so much context. The common backstory that a lot of people in church and outside of church have goes like this, that there's this very dangerous God, and he's made a high moral bar for us to jump over, and we can't jump over it. We're just not up to it, and so he's angry at us, and he's out to get us, and he wants to get us, but at the last minute, somebody steps in and takes the hit for us, and that someone is Jesus, and because he's actually innocent, that makes it all the, all the better. That would sum up a fair amount of Western thinking about the cross. But that's not entirely Jesus dying for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures give a much broader backstory that goes like this goes like this. There's a good God who made a good world and created human beings to bring wisdom and order and flourishing and possibility to that world to sum up creation 
and present it back to God in articulate praise. But then humans say, no, no, God, if there is a God, we're going to do it our own way and we're going to manipulate the world for ourselves. And the result is not that you have an angry God who's out to get us, but that the original project of creation is now out of joint. It's not functioning as it was originally intended. So, many things have gone radically wrong in this world because of human brokenness. And the backstory is about God dealing with human brokenness to get the whole thing, the whole creation project, what his original intention was, back on track, back to where he wanted it. And so that's what the, that's what the cross is all about. So into that context, radical Jesus, and he's confronted with a religious system of the day. He provides a radical critique of that religious system, and he invites people around him to in a new way of being the people of God. The Bible calls this a royal priesthood, and that is the invitation that we accept when we accept what Jesus did for us on the cross. We are invited into a royal priesthood to live in connection with God, and out of that connection, we be the custodians of his creation and bring his wisdom and his justice to the planet. Jesus called this the kingdom of God, and we get to be priests in that kingdom, a royal priesthood. That means that we are the ones who oversee what goes on on his behalf in this earth. That's a big deal. So, if we just think about the cross as a, as a time for me, how am I with God? Jesus died for my sins and I get to go to heaven and it ends there. Then we're only getting a small bit of the pie. If, if we look at it like that, it's that big. But when we look at the whole picture, as the whole backstory that Jesus died according to the scriptures, it's this big. This bit here is still there. We do, we do actually get to, get to benefit from Jesus' death in that way. But sometimes in Christianity, pagan elements slip in and they become part of what we do. And, and we, we actually enjoy that. It's not a bad thing. It's just sometimes it happens and, and you know, we, just, it, we just roll with it. It slots in nicely. This actual, the word Easter actually comes from a pagan festival. Uh, the goddess Estra, who was celebrated in her feast, was celebrated in the month of April, around the same time as Easter, and that and we get that's where we get the name from. She was a god of fertility, hence the bunnies, hence the eggs. That's that's where that comes from. It's not a Christian thing, okay? It's just something that that has anyone. We do it and we like it. You know, who doesn't like chocolate Easter eggs? Anyone? And also. Also, Christmas time. See, the Christmas tree was also a pagan tradition to celebrate the winter solstice. And, that, you know, winter solstice is 21st of December. Christmas Day is the 25th of De- about right. So we'll just embrace that and bring that in. And we'll have, it, we'll have a Christmas tree as well. And, that, and that's, that's part of what we do. And it's not a bad thing to embrace that. It's just part of the celebration, part of what we do. But also... Another thing has slipped in to our thinking, and it's a pagan Greek idea. It was from Plato, this idea that heaven is good and earth is bad, and we want to escape earth and go to heaven. And that, that is the sum total of it all, that we get out of this place, which is, which is really bad, and into a place which is really good, and be with the gods. That was the pagan idea. 
And that, and that idea has brought not a, a, not a stifling limitation, but a limitation to the way we think. We think, oh my goodness, yes, I'm, I'm, I'll come to Jesus. My sins are forgiven and I go to heaven and I get to sit on a cloud and have this disembodied existence in this dreamy state. And it's like that, that, that cartoon in the far side of this guy sitting on a cloud in heaven looking around and saying, I wish I'd brought a magazine. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Jesus gets us to be stewards of the creation. And that extends beyond when we die. Because the Bible talks about not just heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness and good pizza shops and things like that. And, and it's, it is really, yeah, we, we think that maybe after we die, it's a spiritual existence, but a new heaven and a new earth demands physical presences to, to, to be the custom now, but to steward that. And that is what we're invited to. It's a thing that we can start doing now, but we do on and on into eternity. And that's so much more better and broader than just, oh yeah, okay, sins are forgiven, we get to go to heaven which is good in itself, but this is so much more. And that's what we're called to, the new heavens and the new earth. On the night before he died, Jesus gives his disciples an explanation of what he's about to do, what's about to happen the next day. But he doesn't give them, he doesn't pull out the blackboard and do a point-by-point description. He doesn't do the 12-step plan to show them what's going to happen next. No, he just has dinner with them. Jesus and the disciples have a Passover meal together, the Passover supper or the Seder as the Jews call it. And that's what they sat down and Jesus chose Passover. He could have chosen any one of the Jewish feasts. If it was just about heaven and hell and being restored to God, he could have chosen the Day of Atonement because that's what that represents. But he chose Passover because Passover represented so much more. Passover has its roots in the book of Exodus, and the similarities between the the Jews, the nation of Israel, in slavery in the book of Exodus, and the nation of Israel under the Romans when Jesus lived, the similarities are striking. The cross had meaning in Palestine, but the Passover had approximately the same meaning in the book of Exodus. This is actually a bit historical, and I'll bring an application to it in a moment and then we'll actually do the Christian incarnation of Passover and have communion together. What the cross actually did in the nation of Israel when under Roman occupation was that it made a social statement. It made a social statement and said to the conquered nation, you are inferior. We Romans are better than you. It also made a political statement. It said to them, you're conquered. You're under the thumb. You're under the statement that's Roman rule and you'll do what you're told. And it also made a theological statement that said Caesar is Lord because the Romans actually believed that Caesar was a god. You, we know the story in the Bible where Jesus asked for a coin when he's asked if, uh, if they sh- the Jews should pay taxes to the Romans and he asked for a coin. What that coin actually said on it was, had a picture of Caesar and it said, High priest, son of God because that's what the Romans believed about him. So it made a theological statement. What are the implications for us? You are inferior, the first one, the social statement. It feels, we feel like 
we should be more. You ever felt like that? We should be more, I should be more than what I am. This life should be more than what it is. The political statement, you are conquered. Have you ever feel, felt trapped, enslaved by something in your life? Then the, the, then the cross is the remedy for that. And the theological statement, Caesar is Lord, that someone else is in control. I want to just show you quickly how the cross dealt with all three of those things and how we can walk in that. You're very quiet this morning. The voice from above. First of all, let's deal with the social statement that says, you are inferior. You should be more. Scripture from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God gave himself for us. That is the bottom line. His life wasn't taken from, from, from him. He gave himself up to be crucified. When the, when the Roman guards and the, and the temple guards came to, to collect him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't resist. He gave himself up for us. That, by definition, attaches incredible value to each one of us, doesn't it? No, but and it's something you can be happy about and actually be a little bit noisy about, if you like. It is Good Friday, I know, but, and, but it's not a solemn assembly. It's a celebration. So he attaches indescribable value for us in that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's unavoidable and it's inescapable. But sometimes we feel like we should be more. And, and sometimes that we're not more because of what the Bible calls sin. And I wish we would just get rid of that word. It sounds like a 1950s Methodist word that annoys me. But it, it's there, okay? But we all think it's the bad things that we do. It's actually not that. The word for sin is hamasha, the Greek word, and it means God's blueprint for us. So if we have a blueprint, God has a blueprint for us that's there, and we're living here, the gap between that and that is sin. It's, it's not our actions or the outworking of, of evil thoughts in our heads. It's that gap between where we are and where God wants us to be. So, of course, we, f- we should feel like we need to be more. Yeah? Can you say amen? Maybe do it. Yeah, good. So, when Jesus dealt with our sin, he dealt with that gap And now we can walk in the fullness of what God has for us. And there's no Hamasha gap. There's there's nothing between. We can live in perfect connection, in perfect fellowship with God, and we can live out of that connection. Instead of using our worldly wits and our, our, our earthly wisdom, we can live out a pure connection with the Father and hear his voice and put it into practice. Yeah, we, some of us, maybe, yeah, we should be more. Let's, let's, let's use the cross to narrow that gap and work up towards that blueprint of what God has for us. The political statement, you are conquered. You're trapped in, in things. Fill in the gap. So many times we can get trapped in, in things, in, in a lifestyle, in a habit, something that is not good for us, that is detrimental to us. The dark forces 
and rogue entities that are at work on this planet, they, they seem to be in control of our lives. But because of the cross, those forces have been made powerless. Let me read you a verse from Colossians. Colossians 2.15, it says this, having disarmed principalities and powers, that is rogue elements, dark forces that, that control a little bit in some of what we do, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. See, those forces have been made powerless. They only have power if we give them power. I'm talking about demonic forces here, if, you, if you're struggling with the, the, the definition. But Jesus made them powerless. He publicly humiliated them on the cross. I'm not sure how that actually works, but it means one thing for us is that we're not trapped. We don't need to be. If we are, there's a way out, yeah? We don't have to live with addictions and out-of-control behavior and life-controlling problems. The power to get out of those situations has been gifted to us by the cross. That's there. See, as a church, we're, we're going to do a couple of things in the, in the next month that really, that really address this. We're having uh, an encounter retreat coming up at the end of May, and, and that's for people who want to have an encounter, an experience with God, an actual experience where they experience the presence of God and Him speaking to them and actually have an encounter with Him. That's what that's for. This can deal with things that have been in your life for generations or maybe just even in your life. That's what we put on as a church so that we can address those things. For the men, we're having the Conqueror series. And this, this deals with very real contemporary issues that men face. Lack of sexual identity, pornography addictions, things like that. It, it really addresses those issues. I mean, you know, when, when I was a kid at school, you know, someone might produce a dirty book or something like that. And the boys would sneak behind the toilet and have a peek. But now it's beamed in to your phone or your, your, your computer and your kids can get hold of it very easily. So it's, it's good to equip our guys and that's what we're doing. We're going to equip our guys to deal with situations like that. I mean, if you've, if you've never, never watched porn or anything like that, you know someone who does. So drag them along. You know, it might help. And, you know, if, even if you just want to be a good father and short-circuit those things in the lives of your sons, it's, it's good to come along. See, the thing is, the powers that invent those things and put them in our faces are demonic forces. Let's face it. And all of them have been made powerless by the cross. Amen. Big cheer. Moving right along, let's deal with the theological statement. The theological statement says, said in the Roman days... Caesar is Lord. In the, the days of the Exodus, when they had the Passover, it said Pharaoh is Lord. They were under control. Israel was, had been uh, conquered and occupied by the Romans, and, they, and before that, in the Passover, they'd been enslaved by the Egyptians. Someone else controls your life. In the book of First Timothy, sorry, Second Timothy, chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and the grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. The foundational idea here is that we must see the crucified, risen Jesus as already, already now, Lord of this world. Caesar isn't Lord now. Democracy, which is the modern incarnation of Caesar, that isn't Lord. Putin isn't Lord Donald Trump isn't Lord of this world. Jesus is. 
And that's not a syrupy slogan for Christians. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that he, the increase of his government will only in no end. So since he came as a baby, he has been establishing this government that is only increasing. We may look at the world, we may listen to the news, which is sort of slanted a particular way, and we think, oh, no, things are getting bad. But no, the increase of the government of the Lord Jesus Christ in this earth is increasing, and it only just ever increases. It doesn't decrease. The New Testament offers a radical redefinition of power, of lordship itself. There's a power let loose in this world, and it's the power of the gospel. Maybe at times it might not look very effective, but it has transformed culture and continues to. For instance, most nations in this this earth now take responsibility for human rights. However they might argue about it or however poorly they might implement it, they take responsibility for it. Human rights in the first century when Jesus came along just didn't exist. You had, there was nothing apart from a few Jews who might, might want to think about the poor. There was, no, there was no human rights. Now most nations see poverty and disease as a problem to be addressed. In the ancient world, they just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, that's how life is, too bad, unlucky you. The world is gradually recognising, as Jesus did, that women are fully human. Equality is, is making a bid. In the, in the days that Jesus was on earth, in the, the Romans and the Jews had no time, for women were third-rate citizens, okay? They were there for one thing. And no one except a few Jews and some crazy Christians had thoughts to the contrary on that. But the lordship of Jesus is making progress. Can you say amen? All this indicates that the Sermon on the Mount is, is actually working, that the lordship of Jesus is a reality, Jesus' victory is being implemented. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. Even however small it is, that has a cumulative effect and it implements the Lordship of God. When we're all doing it on a small scale, it's cumulative and it amounts to a lot. So what this all entails is, when the Bible says that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, it actually means that God wants to get his original plan for creation back on track, his original intention for you, his original plan and purpose that he lovingly prepared for you individually. He wants to get you as close back to that as he possibly can. And that all happens through the cross, through the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, and back in Jerusalem in the temple, the, the curtain in front of where the Holy of Holies was, and that is the place where the presence of God was reputed to live. When, that, when Jesus said, it is finished, that temple ripped in two, and the greatest concentration of the manifest presence of God on earth went out and became part of each one of us. If the, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, the possibilities are there. The possibility of walking in God's original intention for our lives is there. And that's a great thing. Amen? Why don't we gather around the communion table this morning? I'd just like the stewards to come and and distribute the emblems. And we're going to read a verse to you. I have a theory. And that 
when we sing about the blood of Jesus, when we talk about the blood of Jesus, that there is actually a release of power. There is a release of something intangible, otherworldly, indefinable into the situation, into creation, into the world as it is. Let me read you this verse, Colossians 1.20. It says this, And by him to reconcile all things made self by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. That verse tells us that through the blood of the cross, God is able to reconcile all things. That's all of creation to him. Everyone, even if you've never been to church in your life or never given God a thought, you, all you need to do to activate this in your life is to recognize it. I want to tell you a story about a, a, an album release that happened in about 1975. It was by a man called Gavin Bryars, who was an English composer. This story bears out what I'm saying. What he did, and you'll hear it in the background, was he actually released an album called The Sinking of the Titanic, and it had two tracks on it. It was called The Sinking of the Titanic and Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet was a recording of an old homeless man singing just a few lines of an old hymn. And somebody actually recorded that, and Gavin Bryars got that on a loop, on a tape loop. And he, he then took that voice, which was had no music to it, and he added orchestral backing, which built up and built up and built up, and the track went for like 20 minutes. He re-released it in 1994, and the track went for over an hour, and it had a full orchestra come in, and, and the voice of Tom Waits as well, if you know him. But when he was actually recording the loop, he, he discovered something, and I'll, I'll read it to you. He said... I took the loop, I took the tape loop to Leicester where I was working in the fine art department and copied the loop onto a continuous reel of tape thinking about perhaps adding an orchestrated accompaniment to this. This is the, just the loop of the voice, the old man singing. That's all it was. The door of the recording room opened onto one of the last... While I went in studios and I left the tape copying. When the door opened, while I went to have a cup of coffee... When I came back, I found a normally lively room unnaturally subdued. People were moving about much more slowly than usual, and a few were sitting alone, quietly weeping. I was puzzled until I realized that the tape was still playing and that they had been overcome by the old man's singing. This convinced me of the emotional power of the music and the possibilities offered by adding a simple, though gradually evolving orchestra accompaniment hadn't been overcome by the old man singing. They'd been overcome by what he was singing about, the blood of Jesus, because the blood of Jesus has power, has power in any situation. It has power to release us from a, an inferior mindset. It has power to release us from whatever we're trapped in, and it has power to release us into the kingdom of God where Jesus is Lord. Can you say amen? Why don't you stand together? says that Jesus on the night before he died took bread and broke it and gave thanks. If you can just 
picture that for a moment. I mean, he's about to be horribly executed the day after and he's breaking bread. How could you actually keep anything down? But he did. People say, well, he was the son of God, but doesn't make the nails hurt any less and the whip hurt any less. So today we honour him as a congregation of Christians in this place and we just take communion together. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for the gift of your son and what he suffered and died for us so that we could be released into our original purpose and plan that you made for us, Lord God, that by him we could become part of a royal priesthood who would steward your creation and, and make it better and improve it and bring possibilities to it. Father, we thank you this morning and we acknowledge the death of Jesus on the cross today and thank you for it in his name. And we all say, amen. Let's eat and drink together.